the uh, what's the name of that manuscript? Uh, the Codex Regius, uh, but it it's it's frequently included in the Poetic Edda when it's published. Um, it's uh, written in Fornir uh, uh, uh which is uh, which I just butchered, but is a it's the sort of the standard Edic poetry meter. It's really similar to the the meter of Beowulf, actually, uh, or other old Germanic poetry. It's very archaic in that way. Um, it's also interspersed. There's a little bit of prose, um, and my edition retains retains a bit of a prose epilogue, uh, which provides context for the dialogue, which itself is held entirely in verse. And this is in, uh, found in a saga called Hebrar Saga. Most people think that the saga itself is newer than the poetry that it contains. In other words, there was a lot of poetry around this one particular cycle of stories about this family, about the uh, the sort of Tearfinger. And the saga was written to sort of bring all of that together into a single narrative. And uh, my edition is just of the poem, not the saga itself. Uh, but uh, it's it's one of two or three really excellent poems from the saga. Um, and it, it's probably my favorite poetry, uh, favorite poem in Old Norse, which is sort of why I chose it for this. So the project has been to create sort of a digital student's edition of the poem. Um, and this is something that's near and dear to my heart because of what we do here at Signum. And uh, which part of which is to make this, this learning, this way of education and these great texts accessible to people who wouldn't have the opportunity to maybe go to a university uh, that would teach them otherwise. And so, so far the project includes an introduction, which is about 15 or so pages long, uh, which is an introduction to the background of the saga, the poem, and uh, sort of the criticism and the textual history of it. And then the main thing I'm gonna be showing tonight is a TEI encoded, I'll talk about what that means in a moment, a TEI encoded text existing in a facsimile, diplomatic, and normalized layers. Um, and then a modern English translation of the saga. And the goal ultimately is to make this available to students, specifically Signum students really, uh, who are studying Old Norse so that they can get a sense of Old Norse uh, poetry, but also to so they can come into more direct contact with the manuscript. And so the idea is this will be freely accessible for students of Old Norse. Uh, via the Minota project, and also probably some of the other aspects of the project will be published elsewhere. We'll talk about all that in a little bit. So I want to talk about really quickly just why this is something that uh, a person would want to do. Um, there are, I mean, this is not an obscure poem that's never been published uh, or anything like that. A good critical edition of the text already exists uh, by, uh, published by G. Uh, Turville uh, Petrie and Christopher Tolkien. Uh, Christopher Tolkien also published his own version of the text along with a facing translation, which is pretty good. And that's what I used when I was taking introduction to Old Norse at Signum. And then uh, there's also a pretty standard critical volume of the three major texts of Harvard Saga. Um, and that is by Jan, Jan Helgeson. That was published in 1924. And additionally, there's a new really great edition of the poem um, and the other poetry as part of the uh, Skaldic poetry in uh, Skaldic poetry in Old Norse. I can't remember the name of it now. Uh, but anyway, it's by Hannah, it's by Hannah Burroughs. And I talk about that some in my introduction as well. So there's already a few good editions of the poem out there. So the question might be, well, what uh, what is different about this one? 
And to introduce this, I just want to read two quotes. One is from an Icelandic scholar named Svand Hildur Oscar's daughter. And this is what she says that uh, the editing of text should be the core of Old Norse studies. So she asserts that only when scholars, quote, wear the cloak of the philologist will we finally be able to connect the achievements of our 19th century forebearers, people like Helgeson, with the many branches of 21st century scholarship. And in this, she agrees with philologist R.D. Folk, who says that one definition of philology is an aggregate of the various modes of inquiry related to the editing of text in distinct languages. These modes include historical linguistics, phonology, morphology, dialectology, orthographic studies, metrics, paleography, uh, codicology, and literary hermeneutics. And textual editing is the only activity which brings all of these disciplines together into philology. And uh, so when I was looking at doing a master's project here at Signum University, I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to be a philologist. I knew that I wanted to kind of work on all of these things at once. And uh, so editing a text really seemed like a basic, uh, seemed, seemed like a good way to approach that. Put another way, it's because this, which is the first page, uh, the beginning of the saga in uh, in Turville Petrie's edition of it, is not the same as this. This is the first page of the saga uh, in the actual manuscript, which we're going to look look at more here in a moment. And uh, in fact, if you if you take Intro to Old Norse uh, uh, here at Sigma University, which is a wonderful class, by the way, and uh, that will teach you how to read this you've got a lot more to learn before you're going to be able to read this. And I wanted to be able to do that. I wanted to be able to sort of uh, uh, pick up the manuscript and work from it and read from it and uh, uh, have that extra connection to not just the text, but the people who spoke and wrote in this language. And uh, so that's the first part of it is it's a, it's a textual project. Uh, the second part of it though is TEI encoding, and TEI stands for something called the Text Encoding Initiative, and the Text Encoding Initiative is simply a way for encoding really any text, doesn't have to be ancient text, but really any text into uh, an XML encoded file, which I'll show you here in a, in a second, and uh, this has many advantages. One is that it makes it searchable. You can really tag yourself to death, uh, is what uh, Svan Hilder says. Uh, you can you can tag every word with morphological, syntactical, paleographical information, which information then becomes searchable. Um, you can dump it into a database if you want to do corpus level analysis. Um, uh, lexomics is kind of a popular uh, buzzword in hu digital humanities right now, but one of the big limitations of any lexomic, uh, lexomics project is that it's only as good as the data set that you're working with. And what TI encode, TEI encoding allows you to do is to capture the maximum amount, amount of information about every single aspect of the text, which, is go, which allows corpus level analysis, corpus level linguistics to be much more, uh, much more easily, uh, much more accurate, much more reliable. Um, creating a text this way also makes the text more accessible, right? You are you're just gonna, more people in the world, bottom line is more people in the world are gonna be able to get to this text, they're gonna be able to use it. Um, and again, that's the goal here is that this is something that will be usable for 
students of Old Norse. And then the text can be encoded at multiple layers within the same XML document, which I'll talk about next. So TEI encoding, and specifically the Minota project, the Minota project is the medieval Old Norse text archive. Um, and uh, the Minota project recognizes three levels of transcription. And those are the facsimile level, which would be uh, up, right, up right here, kind of at the top, uh, my first graphic. You can see, uh, so the, basically these three graphics are the same verse, the same stanzas, the first stanza from the poem, but they're presented at the three different transcriptions levels. So up here, you've got the facsimile layer, which is a letter by letter transcription. It keeps the paleographical characteristics and retains the abbreviations as found in the original manuscript and something you will just simply not appreciate until you actually have to work with a medieval manuscript is how often abbreviations are used uh especially in icelandic manuscripts it's pretty it's pretty uh pretty common and so uh here uh you've got um fair fair or um here you've got common uh, but it's just you've got uh, uh a line over the M, which is a nasal abbreviation, is a pretty typical, uh, pretty typical abbreviation. And uh, this is the level at which you know this is basically exactly what was written down on the ma the manuscript, and we've tried to just transcribe it character for character. And the Minota project has a set of characters, which I'll show you in a moment, which help you to do that. The next level of transcription is the diplomatic layer. And this is a also a letter by letter transcription, but we've made a smaller selection of paleographical features. So you'll notice that the little insular eyes, the eyes with no dots, right? They've now become just normal eyes with dots, right? Um, also, very importantly, abbreviations have been expanded and identified. So you'll see here, uh, uh, so here, if you look up, I don't think you guys can actually see my cursor, so you can't see me pointing at all these things. But up at the top of the screen, um, top top line there, the second to last word is uh, with, you know, with, right? Um, or at in this case, sort of. Um, and so it's a V with a little insular I over it as an abbreviation. But here in the diplomatic, which is the, which is the largest graphic below, you've got I and ev have been ex are italicized the abbreviation is expanded so that tells the reader this was abbreviated in the original manuscript and then you've got your normalized layer which is this bottom graphic down here and this is the normalized uh, orthography and you're supposed to normalize to uh, an orthographical standard i use the dictionary of old norse prose which is what the minota project recommends and basically this is the version of the manuscript that uh, the, the the version of the poem that you would be able to read if you took our introduction to Old Norse class. These are the the manuscript forms. Of, actually, our class is pretty cool because we do get into reading things in the diplomatic uh, layer as well towards uh, towards the end of the semester. But this is basically if you learn to read Old Norse Old Norse 101, as it were, that the normalized version is what you would have been trained to read, and it's going to be the most accessible to uh, a student. On the other hand, the diplomatic layer is probably most useful for a trained scholar of Old Norse. And that's why I made that graphic a little bit bigger than the others, because I think most of the time, and Professor Peterson can correct me if this is wrong, but uh, the diplomatic layer is kind of what we like to work from. Yeah, it's, 
it's it's readable enough for for those with advanced training in old norse but it's not quite for um the beginning level but it's it's a recognizable text um and and we can see your cursor by the way oh cool that's good to know good to know yeah good to know all right uh so how did i go about this um so at this point i'm going to end the slide presentation so that we can talk about specifically about kind of the process this is where the meat and bones of the project is so we started with this i started with this manuscript um and i got this manuscript um from uh hundred.is and uh, uh there's a link to that in my uh, in my introduction um they've made they've done some great work making a large number of medieval manuscripts digitized and they're working on new ones every day this is a basically a high resolution scan or high resolution photograph actually of this particular manuscript this manuscript is uh it's from a it's from a codis called the uh the hoax book and uh as you can see it's actually um if you zoom it 100 percent, you know it's pretty difficult to read at that level but you can zoom in to a pretty high level of detail there are only a couple of places where the resolution didn't quite hold up to the uh you know to scrutiny and it was a little difficult um Professor Peterson and I went back and forth via email a number of times about a couple of trickier characters. But for the most part, this is pretty readable. This is not the most readable old uh, Germanic text that I have encountered, but it was cer- it's certainly better than many of them. And this page of the hoax book is much more readable than a lot of them are going to be. So this is what I started with. And I would say that um, actually the first big obstacle to this project was just learning how to read the manuscript. I probably spent about two weeks going through the poem and figuring things out. And it helped that I, you know, I'd read the poem in, in a normalized form before, so I kind of knew what it was supposed to say, but it took me probably about two weeks going through just figuring things out. Uh, there are some, some manuals of Old Norse paleography. Unfortunately, most of them are written in Icelandic, so it's sort of a, you know, um, I can work with that too, but it it it's time consuming. And so I probably spent the first two weeks just learning how to read the manuscript, and some of that was also, you know, there's some idiosyncratic thing that the things that the scribe does, which which is true of all scribes. And so trying to figure out, you know, how are you writing this particular character, and then that helped me know, uh, that helped helped me know uh, how to better read it. And uh, so the way that this gets to this which is this is my facsimile layer and you can see it's it's you know prettier cleaner to the eye maybe but it is exactly the same thing um uh so right here line 10 um that would be right here with this big uh big v Uh, i know it looks like a u um at some point one point i U, U and V is this is the really the same letter at this point. And uh, at one point, I, I transcribed all of these as U's and then had to go back and switch them all to V's. That sort of thing happened a lot in this project early on. So, Richard, we have a question. Do the colors mean anything in the manuscript? Uh, that is a good question. Um, so this guy right here um, is the beginning of uh, beginning of the poem so there was there are a few introductory stanzas and then starting uh right here there is a uh starting right here at hansanu 
Honsonu, there is a, um, uh, it's a prose introduction. And then this blue letter start, this rubric starts the poem. And then each red uh, litera notai, um, these red letters right here are the beginning of a new stanza of the poem. So this is poetry and you'll notice that it is not broken out into lines. Here's the diplomatic layer and you see it's all nicely broken out into the half lines that we like to see our old Norse poetry in. Uh, there are no lines here that would, I mean, you have to think this is medieval Iceland. Uh, if you kill a baby cow, uh, if you kill a calf to make a, a sheet of vellum, which is how you do it, um, that's, I mean, that piece of parchment, uh, that piece of vellum represents a pretty significant lost economic opportunity, you know, and so in other words, paper is expensive um, or, you know, vellum, parchment vellum is expensive. And so they, uh, so, so things are not broken out into lines that would simply be a waste of space. But what they have done is marked the beginning of each stanza. And of course, you know, the meter is pretty regular. It's not at all difficult to figure out where the line breaks go. Uh, that was one of the things I actually had to do when I was transcribing this. Um, but it's not at all difficult. The meter is pretty regular. And once you get the hang of it, you can figure out um, Old Norse is broken out into half lines, um, whereas Old English poetry is broken out into single lines with usually kind of a space between the first half line and the second half line. Um, so this is following the conventions of Old Norse poetry, which all Minota stuff does by default, uh, just because of the style sheet that's used. So yeah, the colors basically mean, uh, the red letters basically mean the beginning of a stanza. Um, so my first step was to start transcribing this. And what that meant was I spent several weeks with the manuscript open, just like you see it here, open on one screen, and this open on the other. And this is the actual project. Um, this is an XML file. Um, XML stands for extensible markup language. If you work in IT, uh, which I do, then you probably know a fair amount about XML already. But basically, XML is just a way of marking up anything, and uh, you can really mark up just basically anything and recording it in a way that uh, a computer system can read and transform into something that humans can read. And uh, so this, um, this whole thing, this is the poem, is about you know 7,800 lines of XML. And what you'll notice that I've done is every time for every word, and you'll see sometimes I've captured things like this is a this is a special red and black letter, and here's what it is. Um, but every single word I have recorded three times. Um, and sometimes like here, that's not very complicated because it's ung, ung, and ung, right? And we just change the V to a U for the normalized because that's the way we show normalized Old Norse. Other words, it can get more complicated on. Uh, for instance, um, solar setter, you know, with like sunset. Um, in the facsimile layer, we have a, uh, a long S so that be right here. It looks sort of you know funny like an F, right? Uh, but you've got a long S. But then in the diplomatic layer, we change those long S's just to normal S's. Uh, where it gets really complicated is in words. Let me find a good example of one where we have a lot of abbreviations. 
Um, now, remember what I said earlier, paper was very expensive. And so if you could abbreviate things, it's, you know, it's useful to do so. And there are certain very standard, very normal abbreviations. I was trying to find a word that's got a lot of interesting ones. Um, but there are certain very standard abbreviations that were just used kind of all throughout. Um, actually, probably learned from Anglo-Saxon scribes who in the turn learned them from continental scribes, but uh, sort of standard abbreviations, but the Icelanders really go to town with them. So a really, this would be a really standard one um, here, which is uh, we've got a bar. So anything in the in the in these tags, uh, AM, that's an abbreviation. Um, uh, we've got a bar over the V or over the U, and that's a really standard uh, bar above the previous character just means uh, there's a nasal character, so an M or an N usually, which is being abbreviated or omitted. So it's the, you know, it's dative ending, right? Um, so basically the whole project, or at least the first part of the project was going through the manuscript once I'd learned to read it, word by word, letter by letter, and encoding that here. Now, uh, I mean, one of the big abbreviations was a learning the abbreviations, what they were, how to encode them. But then also there are a lot of very special characters. Um, for instance, uh, for pretty much all of this scribes D's, uh, let me see if we can find a good uh, example. Here's here's one in Einga uh, daughter, right? Only daughter. Um, this is not a normal D. And uh, according to the Minota handbook, you wouldn't encode that as a normal D, you would encode that as a D rotunda. And so that's why throughout my XML, you'll see this code right here, which says D rot, uh, that's just short for D rotunda. So basically this was the, the meat of the project and it was really just a lot of long nights, um, learning to read the manuscript and then encoding it down here. And, uh, Part of that uh, involved learning the MUFI character set. So the MUFI character set is the character set that is used by the Minota project. Um, I'm gonna actually pull up a PDF. This is a great PDF. I wish I had found this when I started the project. It would have saved me significant time and trouble, um, but it took me a little while to find it. Uh, but this is the recommended character set for basically everything you could conceivably encounter in a medieval manuscript. And it will show you, here's the technical name of it, Here's how, here's what it looks like, what it, what it will render as, and then here's the code that you'll have to put into the uh, uh, the, the entity name, rather, that you're gonna have to put into the XML document to make this render when it prints. Um, and there's also a lot of really interesting notes in here, things like, uh, I'm probably boring somebody here, but, um, sometimes if there's a really weird character, especially these uh, these two uh, up, upside down Fs, the turned small F, it'll explain this is what it's normally used for. Um, and sometimes the Unicode history of the character. And if you're if you're just a really giant nerd, uh, which I guess at this point you'd have to be to even be looking at this document, this is pretty interesting information. So uh, that was the so for the for the facsimile layer, it's basically looking at the manuscript and then capturing exactly what is there and figuring out how to encode it. And that was a significant portion of work. And then once that's done, 
then you sort of go back through and you do the normalized layer. And I did it word by word. So I would figure out the facsimile, then I would figure out the normalized, then or the diplomatic, then I would figure out the normalized. And uh, to hopefully save myself some time that way. And it was really interesting to learn the process of normalization, the, uh, the way that we have of normalizing Old Norse prose and poetry is, and I think Professor Peterson will back me up on this, almost entirely artificial. Um, it was really invented by philologists and linguists during the 17th and 18th centuries, I think. And uh, uh, it's not to say it's useless or anything like that. Every single one of those characters tells you something important about the, etym about the etymological history of the word that you're looking at. But it is artificial. And uh, so learning uh, learning the normalization rules and trying to replicate it myself and uh, and then Professor Peterson coming and correcting me because, you know, there's so much that you just, you know, too much to know. Uh, that was really interesting. And that's really where things like historical phonology of certain sounds came in. Um, uh, and so once all three levels were entered, uh, then the next thing to do was to place the punctuation. And after many years of railing against people who I thought, I thought, you know, put the punctuation in the wrong place, it may be in a critical edition. I now get to be the guy who decides where the punctuation goes. And, and now somebody can come along and, and rant at me and they'll probably be right. Um, and you'll notice that the punctuation tags, uh, so this is the punctuation tag set, um, gets entered at the diplomatic and at the normalized layer, but not at the facsimile layer. Again, the facsimile layer, we want to be just as accurate, as faithful to the manuscript as possible. We want to make zero changes. The diplomatic layer, we might want to make a few changes and introduce punctuation. And then obviously the punctuation is going to be there on the normalized level as well. But it's really interesting to, to know that uh, there's, and there is punctuation in medieval manuscripts, but there is almost almost zero punctuation in this one. Occasionally you'll have it uh, uh, somewhere like right here, the uh, kvath angantir, right? Uh, where you've got a dot here and a dot here, but that's really more part of an abbreviation. Uh, there aren't periods and commas and things like that. Um, you don't really need them, but we modern, uh, especially we modern English speakers, but we modern readers do, uh, we expect the punctuation It helps us parse the sentence. And so, I've added, uh, so I, so once I transcribed it, then I added punctuation where I thought it would be helpful for a reader um, or a translator to parse the sentence and better understand what was being said. The last thing that I did, and this was really just uh, a great pain, but I'm glad that I did it because it's going to save me work later, is the lemma, lemmatized forms. So the lemma of a word is basically the dictionary form of the word that you would look up if you wanted to look that up, uh, that word up in say the uh, dictionary of Old Norse prose or something like this. This is Zoega's uh, Old Icelandic dictionary, uh, which is not the best Old Icelandic Old Norse dictionary there is uh, by a long shot, but I do have a print copy of it and and I, lo I love it very much. So this is the this is the dictionary form. Um, obviously, you know the forms appearing in the manuscript themselves are going to be inflected. They're going to be uh, maybe non-standard or something like that. But if you wanted to go to the dictionary of Old Norse prose and look up this word, balga, you would be looking under balger, which would be the not uh, the uh, uh, nominative singular form. So. 
Um, and what this is going to allow me to do, um, uh, a stage of the project which is still to be done, this will probably be some of my project next year once I've given myself a break, is to create a glossary of the poem, uh, not, a, you know, not a dictionary, but a glossary that's specific to this manuscript for, uh, for students of Old Norse. Um, and uh, my goal is that hopefully this will be of sufficient quality that it's something that uh, we'll be able to use at Signum for our students. And so I want the glossary to be part of that. And I really wanted to do the glossary as part of the main project. Um, and it just got to where it was taking, it, it, it would have taken too much time. It was more important to get the text accurate. Um, I have encountered many books for students, one in particular that I have in mind that I'm sure Professor Peterson knows the one I'm talking about, that have really terrible glossaries that are very difficult for students to use. And uh, so I, I wanted to, you know, make my project, I was going to have a good glossary, right? I was going to be the one that solved this problem. And then I realized when I got to the end here, why the glossaries are always so terrible. It's because it's the last thing you do and you've run out of time. And uh, so you just sort of throw it together. And I don't want that to be the case for this work. And so, um, so I've opted to sort of stop where it's at for now. And then sometime next year, I'm going to pick it up again and do the glossary. But when I do the glossary, because of the magic of XML, I will be able to dump all of this into a database or into even into something like Microsoft Excel and extract all the lemma forms. And those will form the basis of my glossary. And then I can go through and search through the XML and see where is that limit form? Where's that word use? Um, what's the inflection? Um, by the way, you can totally record if you do want to just tag yourself to death, you can record inflectional and syntactic information about every single one of these words. I did not do that for this project. Um, but it's, you know, again, if if there had been three more of me working on this, that would have happened. Um, but I'll be able to easily search the document, see what forms of the word are being used and where, and hopefully be able to populate a really accurate and a really useful glossary, um, kind of the easy way. And that will be because I've recorded all of these LEMAD forms. Um, so how do you get this to this? Uh, well, the answer to that, and this is where XML becomes really, really cool, is that I only had to record the document once. Now, I, I did have to record every letter three times, but I only had to create the document one time. And uh, then you can use an XML editor. I'm using Oxygen which is not a wonderful XML editor, but it is the one that uh, Minota recommends. And they've got really easy instructions for setting up Oxygen to work with your project. And uh, so I've got these transformation scenarios set up and um, not to get like too geeky on you guys, um, but the transformation scenario is pointing at uh, an XSL uh, and uh, X it's really an XSLT style sheet. Um, a style sheet is basically, um, for our purposes, it's a document that tells your browser how to render an XML document in a, in a form that's readable to humans. And so uh, I've got three different ones, and these are the ones that are just provided and created by Minota that I point my document here at. And then if I run this transformation scenario, I'll just double click on it. See, it's running. If I run this transformation scenario, um, it pops up this window in my browser. And look, there it is. So that XSLT style sheet took my XML document 
and it rendered it in the facsimile form. Now, if I run the uh, diplomatic transformation scenario, it will instead render something that looks like this. Um, so you record the document one time, but the, then you can print it as it were, you can render it at three different forms. And on the, uh, on the Minota website, um, in their library, um, they actually have a cool thing where you can view a manuscript and you can toggle between all three layers um, or look at all three layers side by side. Um, and actually it's really cool. Uh, you can highlight a word and it will highlight the word in every single layer. So you can see what's the form of that word here, what's the form of that word here, what's the form of that word here. Um, uh, also words like uh, this EA comin, right? That's EA is two, two words in our diplomatic and normalized layers, but in our facsimile layer, it's one, right? So that would show, you know, you could highlight this one word and it would also highlight as two words on the other two layers. Um, that is a really cool, it's a cool feature. And actually, I, I should just show you what I'm talking about. So this is the Minota project. You can see you visited this page many times. Heck yes, I have. Um, yeah, so we'll go to the English version. So this is the actual medieval Nordic text archive, the Minota project. And this is where they, uh, if you wanna do this for yourself, and I, I strongly recommend this. And I really wanna, especially my, my fellow philologists at Signum, I wanna push this kind of project on you uh, because there's a real need for these texts. These texts are valuable. Um, so if we go to the Minota catalog, this is hopefully where my document will be hosted once, uh, once it's been accepted. Um, here you can see all the ones that other people have done. And if you scroll down to the bottom, you see it's not that many. You know, this is this is not a lot of projects which have been, uh, which are, which are, and this is not a lot of documents which have been hosted here. This is still pretty new stuff. And uh, that means that, yeah, you know, when you're sitting down to figure out your thesis project, there's always this pressure to figure out, you know, what can I do that's gonna add, you know, value, add to the academic conversation. It's gonna be something that's helpful to the academic community. Well, this is a really tangible and really helpful thing that you can do. And it's something that will, will take everything that you learn um, in our philology track and you'll actually be able to use it. And um, so here you can see uh, which texts have lemmas. Well, you'll notice it's not a lot. Uh, which texts have a full syntactic analysis and then what layers they have. So we'll pick one that's kind of got everything here. Alexander Saga, Alexander the Great, very popular subject matter in the Middle Ages. Uh, so here's our manuscript, right? And is by default displaying at the diplomatic layer. And again, for somebody with a fair amount of training in Old Norse, usually that's the layer you wanna work at. But I can also say, give me the facsimile layer, right? So here's what's actually written in the manuscript and then here, and you'll notice, that if I highlight a word, right, it displays it on the other pane. So anyway, that's a really cool thing. And uh, hopefully uh, one of my first things to do once I've uh, rested on my laurels for a couple of weeks is gonna be to submit my text here. And so hopefully you'll see it posted here before too long. Um, so this catalog is a great resource. By the way, if you're just a student of Old Norse and you're curious, uh, this is a wonderful resource. Um, and uh, you can also see here, if you click on a word, it'll show you, here's the normalized form, here's the diplomatic form, here's the facsimile form, here's the lemma. So if you wanna look it up in the, um, 
if you want to look it up in the document, uh, in the dictionary, that's the word you'd need to look up. Here's the MSA, um, here's the document, which basically is like a shelf reference for the letter, and then what folio it's on and what line it is, right? So, um, and every word is gonna be like that. And, and, and this is automatic, by the way. Um, all of mine will show this information as well because I recorded all of it, so. So that's the uh, that's kind of the project. Um, also part of all of this, um, and this was mainly to um, satisfy some of Signum's requirements. Um, I did write a, a, an introduction to the to the saga and to the poem specifically, which I think turned out pretty well. I'm pretty proud of it, um, and that'll be posted uh, in the library. And but that's more just sort of an, a textual introduction to the saga and the history of you know who has worked with this poem and what did they say about it that kind of thing so sort of a lit review for the the uh, literature around harbor or saga um and then the last thing that i did was to produce i'll go and pull this up was to produce a, a modern english translation of the saga and uh in this translation i've uh, tried and attempted and translation is uh it's so fun to do, but it's very frustrating because, you know, you're, you've always got to sort of hone the line between making something that's artistic, uh, you know, versus something that's very formal and equivalent. Um, and so what I tried to do is what all translators tried to do and most of us failed to do, and that is to kind of walk the line between those two extremes, those two poles. Um, so I'll read the first couple of stanzas of this. Uh, a maid has met on Munar Vagar, a man at sunset minding a herd. Who alone to the isle has come? Go quickly now, get to shelter. Uh, the context of this is Herbor shows up on the island and there's a uh, there's a shepherd there, um, um, literally a uh, wealth herder is the, it's kind of a kenning, uh, but it just means shepherd, uh, who's there and she asks him directions to the barrow and he's not very helpful because he's mostly pretty freaked out. Um, most people are freaked out when they meet Herbor. Uh, uh, she's a really cool character. This is a wonderful saga and poem, by the way. So she says, I shall not go to seek for shelter for none I know of the scraggly natives. Speak now swiftly before you flee. Where are the cairns called after Hjorvarder? Um, and uh, scraggly natives is actually a wonderful word. It's Ayarskegya. Um, and this is a reference, uh, means island beard. So the island bearded ones. Uh, this seems to be a reference to the idea that people who live on islands kind of let their beards and their hair grow out in an unkept manner, uh, kind of like I'm preparing to do for the winter. Um, and uh, so when she says this, Herbor isn't just saying she doesn't know any of the natives, so she can't, uh, she can't go to shelter. This is also kind of an insult, uh, even if they would take her in they would not be up to her standards. So in my uh, translation choices, I tried as much as possible to either preserve uh, the sense of things like that, or at least to indicate it in a footnote so you'd get some sense. But of course, as with all Old Norse poetry, what I recommend you do is uh, take a class from Signum and learn to read it in the original. Um, it's a very rewarding thing to do. So that's the project. I've kind of rambled uh, here at the end, but it's kind of a rambly project. So hopefully maybe that explains kind of what I did, how I did it. Um, I could talk at greater length uh, if you're interested about editorial choices in certain places. Um, there are some places where the, the stanza ordering in the Hulk's book version of the manuscript uh, of the saga is 
probably not correct, or at least it's not correct according to the other witnesses to the same saga. Um, so uh, in the, in cases like that, I made the choice, and I talk about this in my introduction, there's a, a, a section on my editorial choices. But in those cases, I made a choice to stick faithfully to what the manuscript says. And that is because something like this, um, a marked up version, uh, especially a facsimile version, um, if I said this is a facsimile, but then I reordered things to my taste, it wouldn't actually be a very good facsimile. So. Uh, in those cases, I have made the choice to just stick with the, what the manuscript says. Uh, additionally, there's also one line where the word order is almost certainly wrong. And we know that because the uh, alliteration would demand a different word order. But in that case as well, I have also stuck with the manuscript reading. Uh, things like this, um, Paul was asking about this earlier, uh, this little spot right here, that indicates that there is a lacuna in the manuscript. Uh, basically, four characters were written and then they were expunged. And we don't know what they said before, um, but these little characters, and that's, uh, there's a, special, a specific way of marking all of this up. All of the markup instructions, by the way, can be found in the Minota handbook. Um, and when you mark it up correctly, when you render it, that's how it will show. And I guess that's the last thing I should say something about is the Minota handbook itself. Um, there are a few different versions up on the Minota website. This is the 3.0 version, and I would just strongly recommend if you want to get into this and you want to work on this, start with the uh, uh, start with the uh, version three. Um, it's still in beta, and so I started with the previous version because I'm a software developer and I don't trust things that are in beta. But I really should have started with version three. It would have saved me a whole lot of pain. Um, Notice who's who's responsible for updating this up at the top there. I'll scroll back up. This revi the revision and updating of this chapter has been assigned to oh, yes. somebody, somebody we don't know. Anyway, we know him, so we had a reader from Iceland actually who's been working on this project yeah. come, come in and uh, you know double check to make sure that Richard and I were not going crazy with. Richard mostly going crazy with the the uh, encoding and so on because it's it is complicated even if you are a software engineer you know the basics of of how to um, you know encode the text properly but it's a lot of work it's very manual labor yes um, so that's why it's important to remind people that you have seven seventy eight hundred or so individual entries. So each word, for example, is essentially written out three times and then with notes of what each and every character is within right. that word, if it's any different than um, like a standard Latin alphabet. So anyway, it's this project, it's amazing. I think this is this. You're absolutely right. This is the direction that we want to go in with with um, thesis projects, because it's it is cutting edge. This is the best way to edit a text. This is how you can learn the most about it. And I remember your first comment to me when you first started reading the manuscript was it's like for the first time you said that this was like the first time I've ever read Old Norse. It's like mm -hmm. I was reading it for the first time when you read it from the manuscript. That's the big difference. Um, so that's that's yes. one of the things that you don't you don't get when you get the nice normalized artificially uh, not simplified but etymological spellings of of the past and so on and I mean it's worth noting that your manuscript is from uh, what is it is it like 1310 or so in that range um, early 1300s and then the standard that we use is from roughly 1200 um, so the language has changed in a hundred or so years mm -hmm. and yet 
so, the, so in other words, the, the text that's written in the manuscript is considered less reliable from that from the normalization standpoint than um, what's actually there. But we should trust our scribes. We should trust our medieval sources more directly, right? That isn't that that's the whole point. Um, so that's what it was like when you were first reading in the in the manuscript. Um, you know, you're looking at at this from a new perspective, actually looking what's really there, what the scribe wanted us to know. So here it is. Um, so here's their hoik spoke. So there we go. Yeah, roughly written over a few, yeah. few decades. <laughs> I'm pulling this up. I do see the question pane now, and Sparrow is asking oh. some questions about like, you know, uh, how many people worked on the manuscript, who use it, things like that. All of that information um, is uh, so. This is the actual manuscript on hundred.is. And you can view the images of the manuscript here. You can download them as PDFs, which is what I did. Um, and so the thing is, like this, this out, this is out here. It is an incredibly valuable resource. Uh, but it's also, you know, you don't have to fly to Norway or Iceland to to use this. You can download these images to your computer. And you know what I said earlier about accessibility. Anyone can do this. You just have to you have to develop the skill set. Um, but here you can see there is a uh, there's a table of contents. It shows the rubric where that particular text starts at, and um, you know what what pages it falls on and things like that. And actually, the table of contents of the hoax book is really wonderful. Um, it's a sort of encyclopedia of the Old Norse worldview is the way that I would maybe frame it. Uh, you've got geographical compendiums, you've got sermons, you've got information about how Noah's sons divided the world amongst themselves, because that's relevant. Um, you've got a uh, sermon on Ember's Day, you've got stuff on the rainbow, stuff on the course of the sun, foreign towns, the burial places of holy men, uh, which, you know, if you're in a pilgrimage culture, like the people working on this book certainly were, then that's relevant information. Um, but then there's also some stuff in here that you would recommend uh, recognize from uh, Old Norse mythology, the uh, Voluspo. And this is really interesting. It is not the same version of the Voluspo that everyone reads in the Poetic Edda. It's different and it's it's interesting. Um, you've also got you know seven precious stones in their nature. Um, Eric Saga uh, Ralvi, uh, Saga of Eric the Red is in here. Um, and then of course the saga that I was working on. And then down here, there's a physical description and it tells things like foliation, collation, condition, uh, the script, who worked on, uh, so right here, uh, hand number seven, that's my guy. Um, this is Hulk, uh, probably Halker himself who wrote, it, who wrote uh, this saga now. Um, additions, binding, uh, history, who had the manuscripts, all this information is out there and it's, it's really fascinating stuff. You can sort of go crazy just reading about it um, and uh, the different book hands and things like that. Um, let's see here. Why does Hervor want the sword? Um, it's mainly because her uh, grandfather's servants were trash talking her. Hervor is kind of a not a great person. I mean, she's really cool, but nobody likes her. Uh, her main hobbies are dressing up as a man, going out into the woods and killing people and taking their stuff. Um, and when she's not doing that, she's bullying the servants. And so the servants sort of said, well, you know, you're not really the daughter of this famous berserker named Angantir. You're actually, uh, you're actually, you know, your mother, you know, begat you with a with a slave. And so she she wants to prove that she's not the daughter of a slave. She wants to prove that she is the, uh, you know, legitimate heir of this berserker. And the best way to prove that is to go and get the family sword, which happens to be cursed. 
Um, and that's kind of what sets her off and starts her very successful career as a Viking and then finally a queen. Um, she's a really cool character. Actually, I think she's one of the coolest characters in, in uh, Old Norse mythology. Um, let's see, we had any other questions? I don't think so. Um, is there any sort of crowdsourcing that happens in the field? Uh, Jeremy Morgan asks, is there any sort of crowdsourcing that happens in this field or as part of Minota when it comes to difficult passages, uncommon words, etc.? Paul? Uh, crowdsourcing, I mean, the whole thing is done by primarily yeah. graduate students. Um, a few of the, like the new one that was just added that you clicked on randomly, the East Lending of Bulk. Um, that's by an Italian friend of mine. Um, so, I mean, it's really not, um, yeah, it's it, this is crowdsourcing, I think, at its yeah. finest, because it's you not. You really do need to know somebody who knows the stuff so that they can look at your yeah. work. Um, and what I would say is, uh, that's a community that Signum can provide. And I think that this is actually a way that Signum's philology program can really contribute a lot is that it puts people um, all over the world. Like the guy who's responsible for editing this chapter of the Minota handbook, he, handbook, he was the second reader on my thesis project. So, you know, this is a, and, and that's that's 100% thanks to Paul, by the way, who, who happened to know him and uh, uh, got him to very graciously agree to work on this project. So um, so that's a community that I think that Signum can uh, produce and, uh, you know, something that I see, you know, there's there's real room for our philology program in that direction. Caden asks, can word and stanza ordering changes be made in the diplomatic and normalized versions? Not really. Um, uh, so you can sort of do it if you if you lie to it um you know so i could take my facsimile layer and say facsimile says this and then do another word entry later that says diplomatic and normalized say this and i could change the ordering that way but what you would lose is the really cool linking between the layers like this um so you you wouldn't be able to do this where you can link and see the change of a form between the layers. Um, um, so there's not really a way to do that, no. Um, for my part, I will just say that personally, um, well, first of all, I recognize the incredible value of a critical edition where somebody has made those decisions. Um, but I don't, I, I really wanna come into contact with the manuscript itself. Um, like I said to, um, like I said to Paul, uh, you know, I felt when I finally, you know, spent two weeks trying to trying to just learn the handwriting of this guy, I felt like I felt like I knew some things about him, but I also felt like I was reading Old Norse, not not a mediated version of Old Norse, and that means writing what reading what people wrote down, and sometimes people made mistakes, and you you sort of learn to go with that. Uh, Caden asks, how is this Voluspol different? Where can I find more details on how they are different and the reasons behind the differences? Um, I'm sure that there are some probably good critical studies of that that have already been done. I don't know if Paul can recommend one. Um, well, we we do read the um, several versions of it in the Edic poetry course. So maybe when that one reruns, I would highly recommend it. Because Voluspau, it has maybe three editions, three versions. Um, I did. Almost, almost all of the Edic poems have uh, several versions. So yeah. it's, it's kind of, I mean, even your version is, 
is that it actually is usually taken as the primary manuscript, although interestingly, Christopher Tolkien's edition, which is sort of the best for the English speaking world because he also has a translation, yeah. um, he, is, he takes another manuscript as his primary. So it's actually in the English speaking world um, underdone, even though in the 19th, 18th and 19th century, this was one of the most famous poems of the Scandinavian Middle Ages in the English speaking world. This was the one all the cool kids were reading, you know, in the, in, in Britain at the time, all the English speaking yeah. uh, learned types. I mean, this was, was one of the most popular poems. This and Kraukumal. Um, yeah, I, I talk about this a little bit in my introduction, but this is one of the earliest poems translated from Old Norse into English. Um, actually, I think it's the first. Yeah, and it's very bizarre. It's very strange. Yeah. <laughs> the translations, um, they have their own history. And 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 yeah. um, the other the other excellent edition of, of the poem, uh, Hannah Burroughs, she has an article about it, which is is quite pretty good about the um, history of the English translations of them, yes. which are very strange. Um, and I have to I have to recommend for everybody to read um, Richard's translation because it's it's actually up there as one of the best that I've read so far. Um, it's not a wooden translation. It's actually, um, it's it's not even, so it's accurate, and yet it still has a style of its own, which I think, um, you know, is hard to preserve uh, when you're translating. That's the, everything is lost in translation, right? Um, but it preserves it better than most. Um, so, you know, that's, um, you know, the, the point of it was, was to create something that was a little bit more your own style there. And, yeah. Uh, I think it'll be a, a pleasant surprise. So I should note that that is not a part of the um, the XML edition. That's right. not it, Minota has nothing to do with translations. Those are only the primary text. So this is for the Signum thesis project specifically. Yeah. And so. we'll we'll make this available when it when the when it's posted. And um, I'm hoping to submit the translation and the normalized version of the text to a journal to be published. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. I, I, I will admit the translation was the part of this project I was probably the most nervous about just because I know how difficult translation is. And um, just to, I'll just say a very quick word about my translation uh, strategy, which was to keep to sort of a basic two beat half line, which would sort of match the two beat half lines of Old Norse. In Old Norse poetry, there are all kinds of little rules about, uh, you know, things that don't get a stress at all or things that maybe get like a half stress. And so they add up to a single stress and things like that. So I use those things as sort of guidelines to give myself a little bit of freedom with basically the syllable count, uh, which means that some of, the, some of the lines have, you know, iambic feet, some of them have trochaic feet, some of them even have, you know, other rhythms, but uh, each half line is more or less about two stresses. And, uh, and um, so hopefully that hopefully that preserves a bit of um, it's easy to think of old poetry as, as, you know, sort of being really stuffy and formal. But this is not this is not a stuffy and formal poem. This is a ghost story. So hopefully it's got a bit of that rhythm to it. Uh, Kidden asks, does the curse ever affect her? If so, how? Uh, sort of. Um, it's complicated. Uh, some people disagree about whether or not the curse was there originally. I think it was uh, for reasons I talk about in my introduction. I think I mean that. The poem is certainly older, I think, than the rest of the saga. Um, but yes, read the saga. It is totally free on the Viking Society publications page. Um, and it's a wonderful saga. It's got everything. In fact, it has the riddle contest in it that is the prototype of the Riddles on the Dark passage in The Hobbit um, um, 100%. And it's really wonderful. Um, Jeremy Morgan asks, what is the biggest surprise or challenge that I experienced during the thesis project? Um, I would say the biggest surprise was getting, and this happened several times with several different letters, 
getting three quarters of the way through and realizing, oh, I've done every D wrong. And I've done every D wrong because I was looking at the manuscript and I was just transposing normal Latin D, but that is not a normal Latin D. And so you have to go back and you have to fix all the Ds. You have to go back and fix all the U's. Um, a really recent one that happened like, you know, two weeks before I submitted the final thesis project was, was fixing all of the K's uh, because the K's, and actually um, I probably went a little overboard there because the Minota handbook actually will tell you um, if it appears in the manuscript, this is how you transcribe it in the facsimile. Um, and actually it says you can get away with just K at the facsimile level. Uh, well, I didn't get away with just K. I, gosh darn it, I put those insular Ks in and I'm proud of it. And anyway, it is what it is. Uh, but when things like that happen, you have to sort of go back and, uh, you know, correct them. And that was the biggest challenge was just learning. And this is why I think a project like this is so important is because you have to learn to not see what you expect to see and instead see what is there. And when you're working with a normalized form of the manuscript, which is necessary for learning the language, you are seeing what, what somebody expects you to see. And unlearning that and learning to instead see what is there, which I think is necessary if you're ever gonna really come to a close understanding of the language and of the culture, that was definitely the biggest challenge. Um, but I will say, uh, Paul did, I, again, I, can, I, I thanked you many times personally. I can't thank you enough. Uh, it was not a Richard finished his first draft and sent the whole thing to Paul. Paul makes some corrections and then we're done. Uh, as we got into the final stages of this project, we went back and forth several times, especially over certain words that were difficult in the manuscript. And uh, at Paul's great depth of knowledge, especially about, oh, well, in this century, that vowel was this. So it's probably this character that we're looking at. Um, that's uh, that's incredible. Uh, like, you're not going to find that in pretty much any, you know, in a textbook or something like that. Like, that's just stuff that you learn. But you learn it by doing this, you know. And uh, so I'm very grateful to Paul, uh, uh, to uh, uh, Professor Higgins, Serena, for uh, her uh, letting me do this sort of non-standard thesis project, but also, you know, encouraging me all, all along the way. Uh, thanks to Haralder for his wonderful uh, second reader work that he did. Um, and most of all to my family, especially my wife, um, for the many hours that, you know, many nights that I did not come to bed until long after everyone else is asleep. What are you doing? I'm transposed, I'm, I'm, I'm encoding Old Norse poetry, you know, um, and uh, so uh, many thanks, especially to my wife, Sophia, for helping with that. But she's she's watching, isn't she? She's just I, she probably is. She probably is. But uh, this is her. I mean, anyone who's done a, a, a thesis project or a dissertation or any big project um, and was also married and had children, you know, you, you know, you know what sacrifices that your loved ones made uh, for that to happen. And I'm very grateful. So, yeah. All right. So I think we'll wrap it up with that. Um, so congratulations, Richard. Well done. And of course, you're not done with the project totally, but I mean, you are done for our purposes and this yes. is, it's ready yeah. to go. Minota, it'll year. be up there. It'll be up in Minota. I don't know how long they take. Probably by, let's say January is, is a realistic goal. It's actually possible to get it up there that soon, I think. So, 
So there we go. And then, yeah, the um, thesis complete. So we, we hope we hope you kind of hang out and come, you know, um, come audit some of the other classes and stuff because they're still. Yeah, well, I missed the last Old Norse uh, poetry class because I was doing this. Exactly. So I was yeah. like, I wonder if it would be reasonable for me to try to do. No, no. it would not. It would no, not it be reasonable not. at all. Um, so, so yeah, there's definitely some classes to audit, and I'm hoping to stick around the Sigmund scene, and I'm hoping to do more of this. Once this project is over, I'll just say, uh, you know, everyone asks you, for the last four years, people have asked, Germanic philology, huh, what are you going to do with that? And my answer is always, well, I'm going to read old Germanic texts. Like, what else are you going to do with that? You know, that's that's why I did the degree. Uh, but my my plan is uh, once this is submitted, once the glossary is finished, um, probably to pick pick another text that would be useful and start the process of digitizing it again and just go slowly. You know, there's no rush on this stuff. These manuscripts aren't going anywhere. Um, but I would just say if you're uh, at Signum and you're considering a thesis topic, uh, definitely think about something like this. There's a real need for this, and um, and this is something that a lot of other people who love the things that we love could use. So. Yep, just don't don't do Beowulf. That one's already been done. Beowulf has been done. Yep, yep. So, There's there actually a, a really lot. good TEI version of Beowulf out there as well. So, but um, the majority of texts have not had any kind of treatment like this whatsoever. Majority of medieval and ancient texts. It, it's an ongoing world project. So this is kind of the stuff we want to do. So yeah, I mean, and you just to, to to demonstrate, you have if you put this into a Word doc, uh, the number of um, you know words and such. This would be what like four pages long. This poem, um, with um, the lines, three or four pages or so. Well, the facsimile version is just uh, two pages. The uh, the because of the line breaks in the normal, uh, right? You know, yeah. it's, it's like it's like seven pages each. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and um, this is only a small fraction of the entire saga, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I might try to tackle more of the saga. Um, I really feel like I know the saga now, so I'd, I'd like to try to tackle so more. So the, the two most famous Eddic poems that are not in the Poetic Edda proper, that are not in the Codex Regius manuscript, are from this saga. They're the two most popular ones. Um, so the Hleskvida is also from this, and that does not have an edition like this, so, you know... Um, yeah. So either you or someone else may have a very excellent project awaiting them. Yeah. So. so. All right. So I think we'll wrap things up there. So I want to thank you again, Richard. Thank uh, you. It's Enormously. been fun. Yeah, it's been really fun. So I'm gonna miss it actually. So it's not nothing like um, reading reading the manuscript till you go blind. Uh, you know, just to double check a single character and be like, no, that's actually an OE ligature for instead of a whatever. Um, and I Those still think. Like and there's missing corrupted text and all this stuff. So, anyway, uh, it's wonderful. So, all right. So, uh, we will see you all. So, thank so you, Richard. Go forth and encode. That's what I would yeah, say. Exactly. All right. All right. Good night, everyone. All right.